titled the sermon, Jesus and Jubilee. Jesus and Jubilee. I'm excited to dig into these verses. You'll see on your sermon notes, uh, I did the, the outline a little bit differently today. And uh, some of the points of application are actually uh, the structure of the sermon. And so as you dig and, and write in those notes, you'll see the, the response kind of build out as we go. And uh, so let's just dig in here. We'll start in chapter 24, uh, verse 1. Uh, the first section I titled, Serve God Faithfully. Serve God Faithfully. And I'll just say this from the outset. The bulk of the instructions about the tabernacle and its furnishings were given at the end of Exodus. And we covered that in great detail. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this today. But I do want to step back and kind of say, what is the Lord doing in giving this assignment? And I think this is what, is, what he's after. Just faithful service. Day after day after day, be faithful and serve me, God is, is calling his people to. So let's read the first few verses here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for, for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Notice, notice that word, regularly. Keep it. Keep it regularly. There's the, the word faithfulness just echoes off of here. Now, to a bit of a refresher here for us, if you weren't with us when we finished through the, the chapters of the book of Exodus, here is the tabernacle in its instructions as it was built. Um, it's maybe just a little short on scale here. This guy would be just about that much shorter. Um, but here is the lampstand, the menorah, the golden lampstand. So as you enter into the, the tabernacle, it would be on your left. And then on the right, we'll be reading about this table of showbread soon. And then the altar of incense would be between you and the Holy of Holies, the veil that would separate that. So three main articles of furniture that filled this uh, holy place. And then one article, the Ark of the Covenant, that would fill the Holy of Holies um, that was only accessible on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. Okay, so here is the candle, uh, the, the light that is to burn. 24-7. Now, you also note that the altar was to never go out. The fire on the altar outside of the tabernacle was also to burn 24-7. Uh, the oil was to be very carefully brought and squeezed. It was to be pure and consistently brought regularly into to keep those candles going. Um, you ask, what is the the, the imagery here, what is God communicating to us in this? Well, God's presence is in view, I believe, and God's salvation, the light of his salvation. Uh, one just very kind of obvious reason that you need this is because if that candle goes out, if those, those uh, flames go out, then the holy place is dark. You can't see in there. Um, so not only does it light the room, but it is that constant reminder it shouldn't go out. It should always burn. And this is the reminder that, that God is with us and his salvation is ever before us. Now let's move on. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it 
It shall be uh, two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, sticks in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Now, this is interesting. God is calling for a food offering to the Lord, but this bread is not consumed by God. God does not need food. Um, and yet, he commands this, this bread be brought each week. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord, there's the word, regularly. It is for, from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So back to the holy place here. This is the table of showbread, uh, piles of six, um, a total of 12, which would represent the 12 tribes. They have brought this bread, and it is baked and then brought and, and set before the Lord. It would sit for one week, and at the end of that week, the priests would then get it for food. Um, <laughs> the question a little bit begs, what is the nature of that bread after sitting out for a week? Um, maybe a little extra peanut butter and honey. I don't know. Like, you got to moisten that up a bit. I, I, or maybe the Lord just kept it. He could do that. I mean, he was feeding them with manna every morning. So maybe he kept it, and it was just as, as uh, beautiful as it was just out of the oven. Um, so here again, you have this amazing connection of a relationship and provision. This is a connection between the people and they're bringing this gift to the Lord, and it's in his presence. Um, it would have been amazing to live at the center of your camp and have the presence of God there. And then each week, you're bringing this bread as a, a food offering to the Lord, and certainly provision for the priests who would eat this bread. It was a most holy portion of their food uh, week by week. So just some notes there that the, uh, the Lord put into Leviticus 24, and then we move on. It's, it's interesting how that works. It's almost like it was kind of a skip back to the end of Exodus, and now we move forward from there. I was just struck this uh, as I was thinking about Jesus. Think of how Jesus fulfills all of the imagery, all of the shadows of tabernacle and all of the articles that filled it. Jesus is the fulfillment of. And he says, in his own words, in, in the list of I am's, right, John 17, I am the light of the world. When he said that, he's talking about these, these lights, these flames that burn. And the, the, certainly later on in his time, the courtyard flames that would burn, the really tall pillars that would light up the night. He is the light of the world. So every time they would refill that oil and keep that flame burning, they were pointing to Christ. They didn't know his name. But it was always about Jesus. And Jesus also said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And so you have this connection with the holy place and um, the work of Christ. What an amazing thing to see how Jesus fulfills these things. Now, in the middle of Leviticus 24, we move from the giving of the law, which is the large part of Leviticus, and every now and then we, we kick into a historical narrative, something that happened. 
We notice this when Aaron's sons brought strange fire before the Lord and the Lord struck them dead. And so we're, we're hearing a story of something that happened. So too, in chapter 24, we're going to learn how important it is that we fear God reverently. So uh, serve God faithfully, opening verses. Number two, fear God reverently. Listen to how this story unfolds. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the, the Israelite woman's son, note this, they won't use his name. That's purposeful. We should feel that. They will not say his name. That is how um, dishonorable his name has become among the camp. They will not honor him even to put his name in the record. So they're only referring to his mother. The Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name. And he cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shlomit. I, I studied that out, and it's such a cool way to say. Okay, let's try this. Okay, let's all say Shlomit on three. One, two, three. Shlomit. Shlomit. The daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody till the word of the Lord should be clear to them. So what do we do? We've had a fight these guys are brawling, and in the midst of the brawl, this woman's son, he speaks a curse, and then he blasphemes the name. Now, we know that whose name are we talking about? The name of the Lord, Yahweh. This is unheard of. This is unthinkable to blaspheme the name. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed and that all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. The laying on of hands was as if to say, I witnessed this horrific event. I heard with my own ears, and I stand as a witness to the justice about to befall this man. They lay their hands on him, and the congregation is called to stone him to death. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. That's a big deal to God. It makes their list early on in the Ten Commandments, right? Do not take the, the name in vain. Do not deal lightly with my name, God says. You can bless him and his name, or you can blaspheme him and his name. It is amazing what a word of anger can do. This man released his tongue, and he let out what was in his heart in that moment. It came out. And rather than just in his anger, Expressing it to this man, he turned upward and he blasphemed the name of God. This defilement of the name of God brought death. It would have been a day that Israel would not have forgotten. You, you watch this go down and you realize this is a big deal. God is not playing games. This theme of his name and his jealousy for his name and his 
uh, care to protect his name shows up throughout the prophets. Ezekiel especially draws our attention to the, the way the Lord defends his name and those who would blaspheme it or defile it. It's a big deal, friends. It should heighten the way we carry ourselves as we walk in this world. We are Christians. We are representatives. We are those who carry the name. We've seen this emphasis over the last few weeks. It just This is another emphasis for us. Now, we don't fear death. This is the function of the law given to Israel. However, the principle echoes into everything. The way we relate to the Lord. The way that we represent the Lord. To those who either know Him or don't know Him. It goes on. It's a good opportunity for more law uh, regarding this, these crimes. Uh, listen to this as it builds out. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. This is the death penalty. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. Now, do you notice the difference? Human beings are not animals. Thus says the Lord. There is a very clear distinction between those who carry the image of God. If you kill one who carries the image, you will be killed. If you kill an animal, you will compensate for that animal. It's a very different application here. And we should feel the significance of that. We are not just matter. We are not just mammals. We are human beings who carry the image of God. If anyone injures his neighbor... As he has done it, shall be done to him. It shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. The contrast is reiterated at the end. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. For I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out uh, of the camp, the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. What an amazing experience this would have been. Now, there's a lot of uh, people who look back on this interaction and they say, oh, what a barbaric, archaic, ignorant, foolish system of law. The problem is, is this is the word of the Lord. That's meeting the people. He is giving them a system and he is calling them to justice. And so there's some things that we should draw out from this and, and that operate in our own day. They equip us to think rightly about what is right and wrong. It's congregational justice, not vigilante justice. Note the difference. When this man blasphemes the name, it is not just an immediate, hey, you did that? You're dead. I will take matters into my own hands and I will take your life. It is bring him before. Make sure there's a, a trial, as it were. There's interaction. There's time. You're hearing from the Lord. You're, you're weighing what was done. You have witnesses, right, who are giving accounts. I heard it. Well, I heard it too. I heard it as well. We all heard it. This man is guilty. And then the congregational uh, application of justice is stone him to death before all of Israel. It is not 
take justice into your own hands and become vigilantes. But I can't help but see how connected it is to this command. Love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19. It's just the echo of this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think of how this builds out. Capital punishment. And and on down from there. If you, let's say I go up and I'm going to break John's arm. I'm just angry and and he tries to give me a hug and I'm like, and I break his arm. And he's like, why did you do that? What have I failed to do? I have failed to love him. Now, how does that connect to me? Well, guess what I get? A broken arm. Love your neighbor as yourself. So before I would break someone's arm, I would stop and say, do I want a broken arm? No, I don't. I won't break his arm. then. Do I want to get just waylaid in the face? No, I'm really angry at this person, but I don't want to do that. I might as well just punch myself in the face instead of punching. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of a sudden, you begin to stop and think. The injuries that I inflict out there are going to return right here. And it has a way of helping people get a grip before you just fly off the handle. Now, some say that this was just more rhetoric, uh, just kind of like examples of, 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 you know, not actually an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But here's the reality. In practice, this is, this is real world living. This would have in some way, shape, or form been practiced. And it would have, every time it, it was witnessed and practiced, it would have left a little bit of an echo in people's hearts. A little pause. Wow. My behavior carries consequence. Justice goes hand in hand with retribution. We saw this theme in the earlier chapters. Retribution is punishment, as we see here, or compensation, right? You kill an animal, compensation has to be made. That fits the crime. It fits the crime. If somebody accidentally steps on someone's toe, you don't kill them, right? That's, that's not uh, retribution. That's not justice. The, the right consequence for uh, the, the offense is, is, is to meet what the offense was in its landing in its application. Justice and retribution. Justice and consequence. This is love. This is love. It's love. We need a word on these things in our day. We need to remember that breaking the law should carry consequence. That retribution is not cold and unloving. It is actually just and right and good. And it helps people stop and say, you know what? I don't want that to happen to me. I won't do this. That pause is helpful. And don't miss this. There is one standard that is given for all. Whether you are a visitor, whether you are a sojourner, or whether you're an Israelite, the same is true. This this justice is to fall blindly on all who transgress this law. One standard for all. Now, trust God completely. Chapter 25. So serve God faithfully, Good Shepherd Community Church. Fear God reverently, Good Shepherd. And trust God completely. I think the very heart 
of chapter 25 asks that question. Will we be a people, God's people, who trust him? Will we trust him to do as he has promised? Listen to these verses as as they come out. We'll start with the Sabbath year, uh, uh, verses 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land uh, shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. The land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. So you're keeping a Sabbath every seventh day, right? But so will the land every seventh year. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, uh, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, for your hired servant and the sojourner who lives with you, for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. Now, you just got to see a view to how God provides. His view is more than just people. God delights in all that he has made. And this Sabbath rest, this, this rest for the land, meets all these levels, including the wild animals that are in the land. All its yield shall be for food. So, on the seventh year, Israel was called, this is a, an agricultural society. They're farmers. They're, they, they keep flocks and vineyards and, and, uh, and fields, and especially with an eye to the promised land. When they take this land and all this fertile, rich land, they work for six years and it produces. But on the seventh year, that land is to rest. This would be rest for the land to re- replenish the nutrients, Right? There's, this is practiced in our day still, right? You need time for the land to kind of recoup after it pulls all that nutrient out to, to grow these crops. It needs to land, lie fallow for, for a year, or sometimes they fertilize now in our day, or spread various things, as we know on certain days you can smell this. But um, there's a certain restoration that the land benefits from. But so too the workers of that land those who labor, the animals who work the land. One year in seven called to rest. Hmm. The big question is, will we trust God enough to rest for an entire year? This This is no small commitment to make. You are saying, Lord, you've promised that if we don't plant, There's going to be enough just volunteer stuff from the previous crops that are going to come out that we're going to have enough food and so will everybody, including the wild beasts. That's what you said? So we're not supposed to work the land at all. Right. Trust me. Trust me. How would we do? How would you do? The, The type A people kind of wired like me, we have a hard time with this one. Okay, now wait a second. I'm I'm doing the math. I'm adding it up. We've got all these mouths. We've got this property. 
and we're not putting seed in the ground. It doesn't add up. God says, trust me. Trust me. Watch me do what I promised. Guess what? They didn't. There's no record of Israel ever keeping this command or the year of Jubilee, which we're about to get to. Sadly, they just couldn't do this. Couldn't bring themselves to do this. Listen, we're studying Ezra and Nehemiah. Listen to what we read next week. We'll, we'll see these verses, but I want to jump ahead just to show you this. The land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. This is a glimpse of judgment to come. Let me show you, fast forward a number of years later, the end of Second Chronicles. I believe Ezra is, is chronicling here for us the setup for his book that he is about to unfold. These are the final verses of Second Chronicles. He says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants of him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of uh, Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. And, the land, and, and all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. 70 years. So think about this. You have this massive amount of time where Israel disobeys the Lord. They do not allow the land to rest. They don't do what God calls them to do here. And every year, God tallies it up. He tallies it up. He tally, it may have been, if you multiply 7 times 70, you're talking 490 years or more. But the number 70 was the number that was allotted. This is how long the land is to rest. And while it rests, where are you going to be? You're going to be in the foreign land, exiled. You disobeyed my commandments. It's a big deal. Their lack of obedience and their lack of faith brought judgment along with many other disobediences. Now, the year of Jubilee, this also functions under this trust God completely category. This is a wonderful thing that probably was never practiced in Israel as God commanded it to be. Let's see how this unfolds in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. Imagine that. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a trumpet throughout all the land. Man, it just gives you shivers to think of what that would have sounded like. It's a big day. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you 
In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat of the produce of the field in this year of jubilee. Each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after jubilee, and he shall sell you to you according to the number of years for crops. Okay, now I'm going to build this out a little more as we go. Let me finish reading here. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. Look at the, the contrast of that. Do not wrong one another, fear the Lord. For I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and you will dwell in the land securely. There's a promise. There's a promise. You want to dwell securely in the land, Israel? Trust me and obey me. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So, the year of Jubilee, you could think of as the year of second chances. It's the year when God gives the, 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 the freedom, the redemption to all those who struggled the past 49 years. The 50th year was a significant moment in the life of Israel. It was a call to rest and to reset. We're going to look in greater detail about how this kind of builds out, but if you had property as assigned by the Lord, and you fell upon hard times, you could take that property and lease it to somebody up until the point in time of the year of Jubilee, which that property then would return to you in full, and all those debts would be cleared. The God of the bumper crop. I love how the Lord speaks to his people here. He promises to provide for them. And don't miss this. He promises to provide for them before the event. I will bring, as it were, a bumper crop to you. I will equip you to live not just through the, the, the seventh year, the Sabbath year, which would have been the, the 49th year, right? That's seven times, that's 49th year. So you're already having a Sabbath year. But also, when it's back to back with the year of Jubilee, that's two years of no planting, of no harvesting of no laboring, that is two full years. And he says, I won't just give you two, I'll give you three years in the 48th year. Trust me, I will prepare you and equip you for this. Obey me when the time comes. Now let's build out the details of this, how this would unfold the redemption procedures. I'm just gonna have the ESV audio um, read through all of these verses and then we'll drop in on some key points uh, when we're done. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. 
for you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of jubilee. In the jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses and the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the jubilee. For the houses and the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers, who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. 
And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay, there's a lot happening in here. But the year of Jubilee was a year of release, a year of fulfillment. Uh, a few things, let's move through this. First of all, God says, it's my land. Uh, he's dealing, dealing with the promised land. So he's preparing the Israelites to uh, go upon the conquest, you know, Joshua, all of the, the cities they would conquer, and to deal um, as God's uh, commanded justice, as it were, through the land of the Canaanites and take their land. Okay, this is, this is land that, that God has said, this is the promised land you're coming back into. This is your land, uh, not theirs. Run them out. And as you do that, this now becomes your land. You're going to live in houses you did not build. You're going to be uh, pulling in harvests that you did not plant. This is, this is for you. It's a land of promise. Now, he apportions the land to the various tribes as, as, as uh, to be a, a, a perpetual due, almost. This, this land is theirs uh, to dwell upon and uh, cultivate and work. But it is ultimately God's land. And so the land is not to permanently change hands. This land is for the tribes, and it's, it's specifically assigned in these various areas, except for the Levites. They were not assigned any um, specific land. They were given a few cities uh, to, to operate in. So it's not right that the land ever be truly sold in, in the way that we would understand it, but more or less it's leased, right? So if, if I can't work the land, or if I'm just a terrible farmer, let's just say I just don't know how to farm, I can't figure it out, and I am in poverty, I have the option then to say, well, I'll lease the land. And I calculate the, the value of my land based upon the number of crops that can be harvested until Jubilee. So if I'm five years away from Jubilee and I'm just destitute and I'm impoverished and I, I have no other option, I can go to someone and say, there are five harvests that I would like to sell you from this piece of land. What price would you give me for these? I need to survive. And when, when we say poor, we're not talking about just kind of having a tough time. We're talking about if we don't do this, we're going to die. Like there's no food. We are going down. We need help. So this is one option. The land is not to permanently change hands. It is to be leased. And uh, those who have succeeded can, can lease this land and work it, bring in the harvest, and they would pay a certain amount to the landowner. Houses in walled cities could be sold permanently. Now, just imagine this. If you sell your home up to a year, and you have, let's say you have buyer's remorse, you're like, oh man, we shouldn't have sold. You can go and say, I want that, that's, that house back in that walled city, and, and you can get it back. But after a year, in a walled city, that's it. It's, it's changed hands, and you have no right um, to, to take it back. But houses and villages tended to be connected to land. And so this was more a lease option, not a permanent sale. Uh, Levite cities uh, functioned differently. They were brought out that way. When an Israelite fell into poverty, did you hear these commands? The call, do not make money from those who are impoverished. Don't see 
your brother who is impoverished as a, a monetary opportunity. Hey, man, I'll, I'll bail you out. I'll give you that five grand with some pretty steep interest, right? I'll, I'll never forget, uh, Jenny and I were, were uh, needing to buy a car, and it was just before we were married. We didn't have any money. We were graduating from Bible school, and we went to Jenny's grandfather, who knew cars and everything, and we said, would it be possible for us to, to borrow some money from you and then pay you back? And uh, it was wonderful. I just was so blessed by how he did. It was very formal exchange, paperwork and all of that, right? He gave us $5,000 interest-free, interest-free. What a gift that was. We needed that help to just kind of get our feet under us and get started. And he said, but, but I want to schedule. This is not just loose. This, the, by this time, I want you to have this paid back. And so we got to work and we had fun paying that debt off. And it was a blessing to us and to him. And uh, I just was struck by that. So similarly here, you are not to make money off of those who are your brothers who are impoverished. You are to help them. And if indeed you have indentured servitude, where a person is so poor, their land is leased and they're out of money, all they have left is themselves. They can sell themselves to you, but not as a slave, as a, a fellow sojourner. And their work is to be not profiting you, but sustaining them, right? They can work for you to sustain, but not to be your profit. Israelite slaves were be, to be treated as hired servants and released upon redemption, uh, either through a kinsman redeemer, as we saw in Ruth, or through their own hard work. They save up the money. They can buy themselves out of the debt or at Jubilee. At Jubilee, the debt is cleared and everything resets. Now, this, these are some tricky verses in here, tough verses to fathom. Uh, the Gentile slaves, they were exempt from these restrictions. Uh, the conquest is the context for these commands. So you have basically a ton of these cities that are put under the ban. Kill everything. And when we go through Joshua, we're going to dig deeper on this. God is bringing justice and retribution to godlessness and pagan practices, and he's using his people to do it. So it's right in that sense as they obey. Put it under the ban. Everything dies. Sometimes they didn't obey the Lord when he called them to that. But in this case, he says there are situations where rather than everybody dying, you can bring these people on as slaves. And we hear this and we're just like, oh, what? what? As people, as possessions? What is that? It just repulses us, even to just to hear these words. This is partly the judgment of God that is functioning through Israel. It is not an endorsement of enslavement. There were people early in the history of our nation who used these verses in Leviticus to justify the slave trade. And it's totally unacceptable. So, we don't have time to go through all of the reasons why I believe it's unacceptable, and I don't believe this is an endorsement of sin or enslavement. Um, certainly, it's just a completely different category functioning for Israel at that time. I put a handout together from a commentary that I read that surveys the topic of slavery in the Bible 
with these verses along with the many others, and it's uh, available for you as you as you head out. Hopefully, you, you can grab one of those and, and dig deeper. Um, I think it'll be helpful. Lots of scriptures. In fact, if you think about it, the abolitionist movement was led by Christians. It was the church that ultimately squashed the slave trade that was just so rampant. And I'm so proud to say that that was part of our story, that we helped bring that mess to an end. So, no, we do not endorse slavery. No, these verses do not just blindly, categorically encourage people to own people for property and bequeath them to their generations. Even though when you read them, you're like, whoa, what is that? So dig in that handout when you get home, and I think it'll be helpful for you to see the larger picture. The big question here, though, is obedience and trust. Will Israel actually do these things? Or will they little by little say, oh, it was a bumper crop. The 48th year just blew our minds. But we could make more. I mean, how do you know when enough is enough? You ever seen that question posed to billionaires? It's never enough, is it? Listen, yeah, we've got three years worth here. We, we're good to go, but we could plant just a little bit, couldn't we? I mean, just a, just a safety net, just in case something, we just plant this. There is no record that Israel ever celebrated Jubilee in this way. That's a sad thing, friends. They missed the opportunity to experience the blessing of God. It is amazing how you would feel going into that 48th year. In in many ways, you would be having to say, Lord, I I come empty-handed with open arms. This is, it is total trust. If you don't sustain us, we starve to death. We have not planted. We have not done any vine dressing. We, we are not prepared for these two full years of no planting, no harvesting, no laboring. We have nothing. And all our hope is in you to do as you've promised. I can't help but see the connection with the way the Lord has designed salvation. Right? Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Empty hands and open arms. So there's some things that we can take away from this passage. So many things that just flow, that show us the heart of God. They, they call us to, his, to, to be His people. A, a people who delight to serve Him faithfully. A people who delight to... to uh, Fear him reverently. A people who are called to trust him completely. One thought that struck me is that God is the God of the broken and the needy. God has a heart for hurting people. He sees that poverty. He sees those situations. And compassion moves. Jesus showed this again and again and again. Moved with compassion. His heart just moved toward those who were downcast and hurting. 
If that's true of God, it should be true of us. What what would it look like this week for us to share this compassion of God, to look around and say, who around us is just broken and hurting? Who's fallen on hard times? Who, Who here can we actively seek out and bless. I mean, that's the beauty of Jubilee. It was a, uh, it was offense, not defense. It was, here we go. We're going into this. We're going to wipe the debt. We're going to clear it. Hmm. God is the God of the broken and the needy. Jesus showed this in his example and his, his work. Number two, we serve a God who is the God of the clean slate. I'm so struck by this at Jubilee. You can come with all of this debt and all of this failure, and you can come before the Lord and experience once in your lifetime, right? Every 50 years. For most people, that would be about once in a lifetime. (laughs) You, You can experience what it's like to have the slate wiped clean. It's all gone. Like, what, what if you were that guy, that farmer, that was just a terrible farmer, and you just made some terrible decisions, and then everything just did, didn't rain, and you lost it all. And then Jubilee hit, and it's cleared. You get the chance to start again. God is a God of second chances. He shows us this in Jubilee. If you're dealing with stuff, and then all of a sudden you make a terrible decision? What if you get hung up on something and you're just stuck on a substance and then all this just starts falling apart and you're like, what, what have I done? Good news. God is a God of second chances. He is a God that loves to wipe the slate clean. He's made provision for this. It is truly what the gospel is all about, isn't it? Think of this. The gospel is the most clear fulfillment of Jubilee in the Bible. It's what Jubilee is always about. It, it, it's, it's the clearing of the debt. We bring all of our sin and rebellion, all of our failures, and all of our just mess, and we, and we lay it before the Lord in honesty. Here's what we got. It's a mess. And he says, guess what? I've made provision for that. You can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. I can wipe the slate clean. And you can start again. You can start over. God can do that. He loves to do that. In fact, he's not looking for people to clean themselves up and come and and try to impress him. He did not have time for that at all. Jesus did not show any regard for self-righteousness. He said, listen, bring me your mess. You messed up? You got issues? You're in the right place. Come on. Bring them here. Watch what I can do. Watch what I'll do. And go back to Luke 4. Jesus said this. Oh, I love these verses as they connect with Leviticus 25. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Not just materially poor, but the spiritually impoverished. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Those who are 
held by their sin. Guess what? Freedom. There's freedom. It's recovery of sight to the blind. Those who are unable to see, both physically in his ministry, but the pointer was spiritual blindness. You, are you bound by sin and blinded by Satan? Guess what? You've come to the right place. You need a Savior. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. I think that's what we see right here. Those who are just oppressed, those who are broken, who are downtrodden, who are just weighed down and burdened by the mess. Jesus says, there's liberty. There's hope. And then he says these words, and this is where it meets us right here. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He says, I'm here to proclaim a jubilee. Something, Israel, you have failed to do. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and, and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. They got really mad, and then they tried to kill him. What has Jesus just said? Right here. He's basically saying, Jubilee, that's me. I am Jubilee for all who would look to me in faith. Come, find forgiveness, find freedom, find hope, joy, and satisfaction. Come start again. Come get a clean slate and learn how to live all over again. That's the good news of the gospel, friends. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Leviticus 25 points us to Jesus with clarity. The failures of Israel to trust demonstrate how easy it is for us to put hope in our labor, in our work, to think that we can do it on our own. And the gospel in the Old Testament is shown up on the pages of Leviticus 25. It's the same gospel of the New Testament. Trust me. You don't have to work. I will provide. You can't earn what you have in Jesus. Jubilee is all about Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we delight in the good news of the gospel. We delight in the fact that we can be forgiven, that you are the God of second chances. You don't seal our fate with all of our mess and our mistakes and our sins and rebellion but that you love to give us a new start. You love to hit the, the reboot button in our soul through the power of the gospel. Father, we thank you that you don't just ignore our sins, but you deal with them in the work of Christ on the cross, that he took upon himself all of our sins and paid them in full such that by faith, when we trust him, that application is applied to us and we are forgiven in full. Oh, what an amazing God you are. We don't deserve this love, Lord. But we come today with empty hands and arms open wide. And we lock eyes with you, the God of great love. And we say thank you for the gift of Christ. He is our only hope. And it is 
to Him that we cling with all our might. Be honored and glorified, Lord, as we carry your name this week. And may we be those who are, are faithful in your presence to serve you. May we be those who are careful in our words to um, revere you completely from the heart. And Lord, help us. We are weak. Sometimes we struggle with this. But help us to trust you completely. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.